Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I am Mecca Don, here with my co-host V. What it do, what the business is. Today is November 21st, 2019. On today's show, we talk about the Miles Garrett and Mason Rudolph situation, check in on the Popeye chicken craze on our viral segment, and we'll talk about the Tua Tagovailoa and Nick Saban situation. We'll also do an Ohio State-Penn State preview with our resident college football insider, Zach Smith. Let's jump right into it. Mecca, you had a tweet about the Miles Garrett situation that went viral last week. Over 3,000 retweets and over 16,000 likes. I'll read it. I hate what Miles Garrett did because it was so dangerous. But I also hate how Mason Rudolph isn't being called out for his punk-ass move that started it. I saw some of the replies as well, and some of them were extremely nasty. Why do you think this hit such a nerve nationally? Man, well, first of all, I mean, let me just say I was shocked. You know, uh, you know, we tweet things all the time and you don't, you know, I didn't really expect that one to go viral. So I did a little bit more digging and I realized that there was a big divide on this issue, which I was actually surprised by. It didn't really make sense to me. People were so appalled at the egregious nature of what Miles Garrett did, understandably so. But as a result of them being so appalled, they couldn't or just didn't care to see the entire story and recognizing that multiple things can be true at once. Miles Garrett brought a knife to a fist fight, but make no mistake. It was a fist fight. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people missed. I mean, shockingly, this is a polarizing issue. I'm not going to try to get people to agree with me necessarily, but I do think context in every situation is key. Context always matters. People, it always matters. And if you or your kid or someone you know or care about ever makes a mistake, no matter how egregious that mistake, I bet you'd also want context to be be established. So V, let me go into a little bit what happened and tell people the story just in case they're not aware of it. And then I kind of want to get your thoughts on it too and and, and get into a, a bigger discussion about it. So here's what happened. The Browns were playing the Steelers. Miles Garrett plays for the Browns. It's a defensive end. Mason Rudolph is the quarterback for the Steelers. Towards the end of the game, Miles Garrett hit and took down Mason Rudolph on one of the last plays. And that's after Rudolph released the ball. It's unclear whether Garrett knew, though, that the ball had been released. That's just something that we don't know. Subsequently, Miles landed on Rudolph fairly hard. Rudolph, in frustration, attempted to pull Garrett's helmet off of his head with two hands unsuccessfully. As Garrett is getting up, Then Rudolph kicks Garrett in the nuts. Then Garrett proceeds to rip Rudolph's helmet off successfully. And Rudolph and another Steeler player charge at Garrett. Garrett then purposefully swings Rudolph's helmet at Rudolph and hits him in the face. A brawl ensues with Steelers players jumping Garrett, Pouncey kicking him in the head, Browns players getting involved. There's a whole melee. Just for reference, Garrett is listed, Miles Garrett is listed at 6'4", 270. And Mason Rudolph is listed at 6'5", 235. So both big guys, right? Mm-hmm. So V, what, what was your impression when you, when you saw this happen? What was your impression on uh, the aftermath in social media? To be honest, like I had fallen asleep 
and I didn't see it until the morning. Um, and the first thing that I saw, you said context matters. The first thing that I saw was a shortened clip um, of just Miles Garrett swinging his helmet. Mm-hmm. And obviously my reaction is like, what the hell is this guy doing? This is crazy. Yep. And, you know, as a Browns fan, we've we've heard a little bit about Miles Garrett and it seemed out of character for him too, because we have a story that another story that isn't being talked about like four weeks ago, Miles Garrett got punched in the face by a fan and walked away from that situation. So it's like, okay, we go from that guy to this guy. It wasn't making a lot of sense to me throughout watching it. And then I saw the extended clip and I saw everything that happened Mm -hmm. from Mason Rudolph trying to punch him in the balls, which again, we're talking about, Miles Garrett swinging a helmet at him. Trying to punch a man in the balls is just as egregious as swinging a weapon at him to most men. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's also a saying most kids grow up, you know, my mom and most moms teach their kids that if someone hits you, you hit them back. Yeah. So I think the thing that I, I think people are so caught up on what Miles Garrett did. And listen, this is this is let me be very clear about this, because I think that I want us to be smarter than this. And from a lot of the comments and just the reaction that I've seen, I feel like we're not being smart enough on this. My, what Miles Garrett did was egregious, and he got suspended, and he deserved the suspension. It was also very dangerous. And in that tweet that you mentioned, I said so dangerous. I put as many O's <laughs> as I could so people could realize that I understood the nature of what happened. But that doesn't mean that there's not other parts of the story that need to be discussed as well. And that's the thing that really, really bothered me. Miles Garrett got up there afterward, and he faced the music. He accepted his punishment. He didn't try to make any excuses. He apologized. He apologized to the organization. He apologized to Mason Rudolph, so on and so forth. Mason Rudolph can get up there and, and be all uh, victim-oriented like he had nothing to do with the situation. And then the NFL actually supported that decision or that stance that he took by not suspending him you suspended everybody else around him including the people that came to his defense who are essentially code football coded you're required to do that by the way if you're one of his linemen you got to come in there and you got to defend him and they all get suspended and he doesn't and so that's the thing that really really bothered me about this situation is that mason rudolph obviously he got something bad that happened to him but if you look at the whole situation you realize that he also had multiple opportunities to de-escalate the situation. He instigated the entire situation. If you really look at what happened, you know, Miles Garrett would have ended that fight when he ripped his helmet off, an eye for an eye, but Mason Rudolph charged at him again. And at that point, what I said is that's a fight or flight right there. For anyone who's ever been in a fight, and it sounds like all these people who are analyzing this situation have maybe have never been in a fight. But for anyone who's ever been in a fight, and this is what I, what I was referring to earlier about Miles Garrett bringing a knife to a fist fight. Miles Garrett used a weapon. But that doesn't mean that what Mason Rudolph did before that was not also dangerous. When he tried to rip, go watch the clip again. The whole clip. Don't just watch Miles Garrett swinging his helmet. Watch the whole clip. When he tried to rip off Miles Garrett's helmet miles garrett's neck twisted to the side i watched it this morning and then after that you try to kick the guy in the balls and then you get up and you charge at him three different opportunities to de-escalate the situation none of which he chose to do 
And the other thing here, again, I'm going back to the person we know Miles Garrett to be four weeks ago when someone actually punched him in the face. And another thing that's not being talked about is that Mason Rudolph was the one that had reason to be frustrated that night. Mm-hmm. He had thrown four interceptions. Miles Garrett was on the winning side of the team, of the, of the ledger there. So, you know, that's another thing. It's like who had the reason to be angry and belligerent? It was Mason Rudolph. And Mason Rudolph was visibly frustrated throughout the whole thing. Again, I have to keep saying this because I feel like it's not getting through people's brains. This is not to absolve Miles Garrett for the actions that he took. That's not what this conversation is about. It's never going to be about that. We understand that what he did was egregious. We understand that he should be punished, and he has been punished. This is about fairness. People wanted to bring up law. People were saying that he should sue him for assault. That was actually something that was being... That was actually what I was going to ask you about. You know, I lived in a stand-your-ground stand your state in mm-hmm. Texas. and In that situation, from my understanding, this would be on Mason Rudolph. Um, I really would like to hear. You are a lawyer, so yeah. let's let's. How would this play out in a courtroom if if Mason Rudolph actually would have filed assault charges? So it's a it's a great question, and I think it actually brings me to kind of a perfect analogy and maybe a real world analogy that maybe this will understand help people understand the issue a little bit better. Two scenarios. I'm going to paint two scenarios for you. First scenario: a woman walks in on her husband sleeping with another woman. And in a rage, she pulls out a gun, she shoots and kills him. Okay? That's scenario one. Scenario number two, that same woman decides one day that she's going to come home and kill her husband because she doesn't want to be with him anymore. She comes home, grabs a gun, unprovoked, shoots and kills her husband. Both of those scenarios result in death, right? Mm -hmm. Both of those scenarios, she killed her husband. Neither one of them sound too good. (laughs) (laughs) Neither one of them sounds too good. Sorry. It's kind of a grim example. But I use it to illustrate the point. And when I talk about context, scenario number one, that woman's going to jail. She is going to get punished. Mm -hmm. But that's going to be voluntary manslaughter. Scenario number two, she's going to go to jail, but that's going to be murder one. First degree, otherwise known as first degree murder. And both of those two scenarios, even though they both resulted in death, both was where she killed the man. They're going to get they're going to be two totally different sentences. And that's why context matters. So if this were to go to a court of law, the judge is not just going to look at, "Oh, he hit him." He's going to look at the entire scenario, what precipitated it, what instigated it, what encouraged it, who hit who first, and then he would make his decision. And Miles Garrett would not be found guilty of assault. And to the extent that he was, Mason Rudolph would also be found guilty of assault. So the last thing that on this, too, is that people are saying, oh, well, Mason Rudolph's hand got caught or, Mason, or Miles Garrett landed on him too hard and hit him and making all these excuses. Even if I give you that, even if I give you, okay, Miles Garrett shouldn't have hit him and it was a late hit. Fine. Late hits happen all the time in football and penalty flags get thrown and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that you start trying to rip off somebody's helmet. The dangers of trying to rip off somebody's helmet, first of all, you can break their neck. And the second thing is that you can also leave their head exposed if you are actually successful. And and everybody knows who played football. I played. I know. These type of things used to happen in practice. If your head is exposed on a football field, you are in very, very much of danger. Because all kinds of things can happen at that point in time. 
So the thing that I kind of want to leave people with, again, final point. What message is the NFL sending? By, not, by suspending everybody around him, including the people who came in to protect him, but not suspending Mason Rudolph. What message are you sending to the kids? What message are you sending to people who are the fans and people who are watching this? This is all about fairness and proportionality. Like I said earlier, Miles has had to face the music, and rightfully so. But Mason Rudolph gets to walk around freely doing press conferences, playing complete victim with no suspension at all. That is not fair. I guess they're taking protecting the quarterback to a whole new level with this one. Whole new level. Let's put a button on that for now. When we get back from break, we'll talk the Popeye chicken viral phenomenon from a business and marketing standpoint. And I'll try it live in studio for the first time. Be right back. Thanks for listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple and Spotify and follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Pilot Boys on YouTube. Don't forget, sharing is caring. I'm feeling like a million bucks. Cutting up just for the money. We like nipping tuck. Jet like Benny from the sandlot. Cost 50,000 for my handcock. Ah, baby, baby. Riding to the top. Driving haters crazy. Never gonna stop. I'm feeling like a million bucks. Cutting up just for the money. We like Welcome back to the Pilot Boys Podcast. We're now going to hit our viral business segment with V. Today, we're going to talk about the Popeye's chicken phenomenon, and I'm going to try the sandwich for the first time right now, live in studio. If you haven't been hiding in a cave waiting for Trump to be impeached in the last four months, it was impossible for you not to hear about the new Popeye's chicken sandwich and the hysteria it's created. From a branding and economic perspective, it has been truly fascinating to watch, and today we will attempt to make sense of it all. But first, we have a Popeye's chicken sandwich virgin in the building. <laughs> it's crazy, man. I, I literally, I mean, like a hundred times I've wanted to try the sandwich, and I just either the line was too long or it was sold out or whatever, so, but we finally got one, and yeah, I'm ready. The fact that you haven't tried it, knowing how much you like chicken and love chicken... <laughs> That's it's so crazy. So, I got friends that call me chicken with a side of chicken. That's my nickname. So the fact that I haven't tried it is crazy. But yeah, here we are. It was it was uncivilized to keep this from him any longer, fellas. All right. So I'm about to open it. I'm about to try it for the first time. You ready? Yeah. What do you think? It's good. It's good. It's good. I mean, one bite. It's good. It's take good. another bite. Take another <laughs> bite. Take another bite. All right, hold on. Yo, it's good. I mean, it's good. Okay, so that, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let me say this. Let me say this. From all the things that I heard about it, right, and the hysteria and the craze yeah. and the fights, people beating each other up to get their sandwich, it's like, yeah. it almost like I'm almost didn't even want to try it because I'm like, what is this that I'm going to try that's going to make me just like want to explode out of my body? That's what, that's the feeling that I feel like I wanted to get. That's not what I'm necessarily getting now. It's a great sandwich. I mean, obviously it tastes, it tastes good, but it's not like, again, it's just hard to kind of match that hype that, you know, when you hear about it from a hundred people a day, you know? Yeah. My, my story with it is interesting, right? It got released in, in Houston a couple of days early. Farrah called me and was like, you have to go try this chicken sandwich. I was at the casino about to get the buffet, and you know the buffet's good mm -hmm. there. She's like, you have to go get this sandwich. Right. I go and get the sandwich, and this is before like 
all the hype and craze happened the week after. Okay. So you guys discovered this thing. Yeah, discovered it. Yeah. Discovered it. So I went and I got it and I ate it on the way home. And I literally had to be talked out of turning around and getting another one. (laughs) And and, and people know how much I love, anybody that knows me knows how much I love Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Oh, yeah. So if there's a, 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 a top three yeah. now, Popeye's is at number one okay. because it's a little bit bigger, yeah, it's bigger. than Chick-fil-A's. Bigger. And then I like the spicy mayo. Okay. Number two is Chick-fil-A and three is still the Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich. Wendy's spicy chicken gets slept on. Matter of fact, if you're on, uh, if you're on Twitter right now at Pilot Boys Pod, holler at us. Let us know what you think about the chicken Popeye's chicken sandwich and whether you agree with V's top three. Right now, I'm, I still would probably put I don't know. I love the Chick-fil-A. I love the Chick-fil-A sandwich. Right now I would stay with Chick-fil-A one, Popeye's probably two, Wendy's probably three. But I'm a I'm a you know, I'm gonna finish the sandwich today because it is good. And maybe by the end of the day I'll change my mind. We'll see. So tell us a little bit more about it. Because the thing is, is that, you know, part of the reason why we do this segment, you know, is because I think that there, there are certain things that happen in society and we all hear about them. And we all talk about them, but we don't necessarily dig deeper. We don't necessarily go beyond what we see just on the surface. And I think this is an opportunity to kind of talk numbers. Let's talk numbers. Let's talk business impact. Let's talk uh, marketing. Let's talk branding. Those are the type of things that I think a lot of entrepreneurs who might be listening to this show may be very much so interested in. So jump into that, V. That'd be helpful. Yeah, obviously what what fascinated me most about this is just the business impact that Mm -hmm. this chicken sandwich has had. Um, and the impact that's had on Popeyes and the impact that it's had financially overall to its franchise owners um, kind of trickling down. Um, the main thing is that the marketing value itself is probably where a good place to start. Um, Apex Marketing Group actually estimated that Popeyes generated $65 million in media value. And what that means wow. is the equivalent to what a company would pay for this attention. And this was just for the first three weeks. Wait, so you're saying in the first three weeks, basically, if they were to pay for the marketing that they got from the kind of virality of this thing, that would have cost them $65 million? Yes. Oh, man, that's crazy. Yes. And so that's what's so amazing here. And, you know, oftentimes we hear about people bashing social media and technology, but there are examples like this where you see the power of social media and the impact that it has in growing a sandwich, right? And there have been so many different studies, as as you can imagine, articles written about using the chicken sandwich as an economic indicator, um, which I thought was particularly interesting. Um, The Popeye's chicken sandwich is priced at $3.99, which is higher than the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, um, right? And so oftentimes during times of great economic positivity or, or happiness, these sandwiches come out. The Big Mac was introduced during a time of economic prosperity, as was the Whopper. And we both we all know like the impact that those sandwiches have had. Yeah. And it seems like Popeye's chicken is like the latest example of a sandwich that's that's had that impact. But then when you look at this and you break down the numbers and you think about Popeye's as a as a, a franchise, right? Right. So $65 million in media value. I couldn't find any figures on the exact amount of money this thing has generated, Popeyes. Mm-hmm. But it's so, in a million, multiple millions, yes, I assume. Yes, tens of millions. Yeah. Um, and you look at it from a franchise standpoint. Each individual franchise is having a significantly better Christmas season this year. <laughs> For sure. As a result of this, this sandwich. You know, you have lines 
going out to the street. They said in New Jersey that the police were issuing tickets to people at Popeye's because they were clogging the traffic on the street. That's how long the line was going. And then also you look at another interesting angle for me was looking at the impact that it had on employees, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people who work at Popeye's chicken franchises are making minimum wage. Right. And we've heard of the stories of people fighting, people bringing in their kids to help them make these sandwiches. It's It's dangerous. It's like dangerous, yeah. And in Houston, a manager got held up at gunpoint. It's crazy. And so that's the... That's the the negative side of something going viral like yeah. this. Obviously, this is a chicken sandwich. Like yeah. people shouldn't go this crazy, but right. we know human beings are crazy. And when panic ensues, crazy you're going to hear crazy stories like this. Right. So let's let's talk marketing for a second too, because I think you know everybody who's an entrepreneur, including us and people, a lot of people listening to this show, we want to figure out how do we capture, how do we make something go viral? You know, how do we capture? the hearts and minds of America and how do we get uh, you know a million impressions on Twitter and you know maybe this thing is just is this lightning striking is there a formula here is there something that we could take away from this and say maybe this is something that I could do or something that I could try to create a spark in my business the first mistake i see a lot of new entrepreneurs making now is they focus so much on social media because it has so much hype And they're like, how do we make this go viral? Mm -hmm. But if you look at any successful product, what happens first is, do you have a good product? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself that question. Right. You know, and if you look back, Popeye's actually did test this sandwich. They went through a process. Obviously, they couldn't have imagined this being this big of a hit. Sure. Um, And it is lightning in a bottle because also, I think what helped a lot here is Chick-fil-A's brand value. Right. Right. Because Chick-fil-A is accepted in the marketplace as the chicken sandwich king. People already talk about it on social media. People post when they go to Chick-fil-A. Right. So what actually helped this was when the chicken war started, Mm. right? And so Chick-fil-A actually got a a boon too in business because Popeye sold out. Right. Um, And then also the other thing that happened here, and I think this was intentional, by the way, was when they ran out of chicken. Yeah. Right. Scarcity effect. There's there's a surplus of poultry in the United States right (laughs) Right. now. That's that's (laughs) that's that's bullshit. Yeah. You know. But from a marketing standpoint, it was brilliant. Mm. One thing we always talk about is inventory management, right? Yeah. And running out of things sometimes can work to your advantage. And so they brought the chicken sandwich back last week, and again, they just kept going down that path of just craze. People yeah. were waiting in line. It went crazy again. So Yeah. So I guess the, just to put it a It is bow, lightning in a bottle. Yeah. So to put a bow kind of on this conversation, what what are, you, are some of your final thoughts? Again, I think this, this conversation is important for people who are in business, uh, young people who are trying to start something. What are some of the takeaways, to, I guess your final takeaways that you think that you took away from this particular situation that you think could help people moving forward? I think when you make a hit like this, what Popeyes did very well was react Mm -hmm. very well. And having a plan, right? Best case, worst case scenario, like if something becomes a hit like this, because you also have to think about the other side. You might have a great product that doesn't hit right away, right? right? But doesn't mean it's not a great product. In this situation, I think anybody who's looking at this situation should study it, Yeah, um, take away the benefits, but not think and apply that to, oh, this is what's going to happen to us if we follow the same model. Right. Got you. No, that was great, man. Again, if you're on Twitter, holler at us at uh, at Pilot Boys Pod. Let us know what you think about the Popeye's chicken sandwich if you've tried it. 
Uh, let us know your top three rankings as well, and we can uh, agree to disagree, or maybe we'll all agree. Sorry, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> when we get back, we'll get into our college football segment. We'll talk the Tua Tagovailoa situation and do an Ohio State-Penn State preview with our college football insider, Zach Smith. Wrist watch tip top pockets on a milli. Give a toast to all my people, we like dilly dilly. Pilot boys staying fly, Super Bowl like Philly. When they ask me if I'm fly, I'm like, really, really. Three steps ahead, staying on the move. Don't listen to the gossip, it's barely ever true. Don't matter what you say, just matters what you do. They criticize the dog, I'm like, who the heck are you? Welcome back to the Pilot Boys podcast. Tua Tungavailoa. You know what? Let me stop here for a second. I have a name, a long name. Chukwa Mecca Onyejekwa. That's how you pronounce my full name. Just try to say it, okay? My whole life, I dealt with people who just wouldn't even try, okay? Just try, okay? I know for you, it's not a big deal. But for us, sometimes, even if you get it wrong, it feels good that people even try, okay? All right. Sorry. I digress. Tua Tungavailoa is the starting quarterback for the University of Alabama. He took the sports world by storm a couple years ago when he replaced the incumbent starter Jalen Hurts at halftime in the national championship game and led them to victory. It was like the stuff out of a movie. Since then, he's become a top pro pro prospect. That's a tongue twister. Some even thinking that he could be the number one overall NFL draft pick this year. But it's no secret that he's been battling injuries his entire career, and specifically this year. He had ankle surgery as recent as October 20th and was visibly uncomfortable in his game against LSU November 9th. So much so that many people were calling for Nick Saban to sit him and rest him against Mississippi State this past weekend. Despite the noise, Nick Saban plays him. Mississippi State is a four-win team and no real threat to Alabama with or without Tua. Late in the first half, Tua gets hurt in what some people are calling a freak accident. He went down writhing in pain and dislocated his hip. Fuck you, Nick Saban. I don't care if all of Tua's home state petitioned you to play him. I don't care if the freaking Alabama Doctors Association all signed a sworn statement under oath that said he was okay to play. We have eyes. All of America knew that he wasn't healthy. But Bama just lost to LSU, and as a result, they don't have many opportunities left to make a statement to get in the college football playoff. So you played him. You mortgaged his future over a victory, or for a victory over a four-win team, you sick asshole. Protect the kids. Tua should have never stepped foot on that field that day, and this is not hindsight analysis. For the last three years, this kid has helped you get rich, keep you rich, and you don't even have the decency to protect him in his bright future because you're so damn concerned with your personal goals. Now, the word is that Tua may make a full recovery. That's good news. Good news for the kid. We're all happy about that. And I hope that all of his dreams do come true. But that doesn't absolve Nick Saban from his responsibility here. And the last thing for you people calling it a quote-unquote freak accident. Well, freak accidents on the field don't occur if you're not on the freaking field. I spoke to my sister who's a doctor and she confirmed my original thought. Once you're injured somewhere, it substantially increases the likelihood of you getting injured elsewhere. So it's not so freak. Nick Saban is a freak. 
The this situation, as you can tell, I'm fired up, man. But it, it really bothers me a lot. And uh, I guess I kind of want to get your thoughts on it too. Actually, you know mine pretty well by now, because I know you had somewhat not necessarily a different perspective, but a perspective that I think is worth hearing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Obviously, I'm not as emotionally fired up about this, um, just because I try to, again, think through the whole scenario. Um, what bothered me most is that within two seconds of the injury, I go on Twitter and people are already calling for Nick Saban's head, mm-hmm. right? I think the the thing that bothers me again is like, what's wrong with the kid? Are we concerned about the kid or are we concerned about the story first and finding someone to blame? That's the only thing that I kind of differ on. And then also let's look at the actual injury, mm-hmm. right? It was a freak injury. I, I hear what you're saying about he was already hurt, right? And maybe he shouldn't have played in the game. But once he plays in the game, the kid wants to play, is begging you to play. It's hard to not have the kid play in that scenario. No one's anticipating this happening. And then I dug a little bit deeper and looked at the situation. The ankle injury that he had, he had last year, came back and played. I don't know what happened, but I want to Let's get the answers, right? Yeah. What was the process that Alabama and its medical staff and coaching staff went through to come to this decision? Also, Alabama has the, on staff basically the best orthopedic surgeon in the country. Anybody who knows football knows who Dr. James Andrews is and the Andrews Sports Institute. Mm-hmm. If they had said, okay, he can play, there's no risk for further injury, right? Does that make a difference to you in this scenario if that was what was explained and and given to Nick Saban to go from versus if that wasn't? See, in law, we we have something that we call, that's called strict liability. And strict liability is essentially this. If you're engaging in something that's inherently dangerous, an activity that's inherently dangerous, and something bad happens, you're responsible for the result no matter how freak that injury is. So, for example, let's say you're in your neighborhood. You're letting off fireworks normally. Fireworks is an inherently dangerous activity. At least it's considered that way under the law. And let's say one of your fireworks somehow bounces the wrong way, lands in your neighbor's bush. That bush sets on fire, and then then the whole house sets on fire and burns down. You know what? You're going to be held responsible for the entire thing because the inherent activity that you engaged in is dangerous. And that's called strict liability. And that's the same way I view this exact situation with Nick Saban. Yeah, if you just look at the fact of what happened on the field when he played and that he was petitioning him to go back in, he was going to take him out, all that type of stuff. Yeah, that might not seem like that big of a deal. It's a freak thing. But when you look at the whole entire circumstance, you look at the fact that the kid was already injured. We know he was injured. I watched the game against LSU the week before. He was limping around. Yeah, I watched it. So no one can tell me what I saw. I saw it with my own eyes. You knew he was injured. You knew he had just had surgery on October 20th. Even if he, it wasn't that same injury, you know that once someone's injured, that increases the likelihood of other injuries happening. Not to mention, many people in the media and across the country were calling for Nick Saban to sit, sit to a down. This was not, oh, this is not hindsight analysis. And then lastly, you guys are playing Mississippi State. So this isn't like you're playing in the SEC championship game And maybe even Tua has something to gain from playing in that game. This is Mississippi State. 
a four-win team. It, sit them down. Coach's decision it happens all the time in the NBA and big sports with professionals. It happens when guys are actually healthy. Coach's decision. Rest. That's the thing that bothers me so much about this situation. But you did bring up something interesting. And I think maybe it's a good time. Maybe we bring in uh, Zach Smith, our college football insider, to talk about it as well, about protocol, right? Because there is a protocol here, right? Mm -hmm. Nick Saban is a coach. He's the head coach. But he is not the only person that's involved in the decision-making process. Zach, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us, man. So as you can see, I'm, I'm fired up about this situation. And I try not to get too emotional about it because I know there's, there's another side to this story. And I think that there's, you know, you could help us kind of clarify some of the issues that I think a lot of people are kind of wondering. And I think first, well, let's start with what V mentioned earlier is protocol and clearance. What what goes into that uh, when people decide, when coaches decide or whether or not someone's going to play or not? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always centered around doctor's orders, right? And, and it, there's so many different scenarios in the history of college football where those doctor's orders are influenced by a coach, right? Yeah. And, and nowadays, it's to the point where it's almost hands-off. It's like with the do whatever the doctor says as a coach, the last thing you're going to do is say anything otherwise right. because you're completely liable. Then you, you see even guys like Kevin Wilson got a, lost his job basically at Indiana because of disagreements with the trainer, and I and he, he wasn't even trying to influence get kids on the field or anything like that. But I think it's uh, it's definitely up to the doctor. Now, doctors also are vested in the program. I mean, you look at Ohio State and, and James Borchers and, and some of the doctors, that, I mean, they're a part of the program. They're not just a doctor advising you. Right. So right? every school has like a team doctor, essentially. And then I, it's really a team of team doctors. You okay. know what I mean? At Ohio State, there's probably three or four. And then you have your specialist, your ankle guy, your hip guy, your whatever, spine guy yeah. that aren't necessarily within the program. They're just the specialists that, that you outsource to. But... Um, I would think in Tua's situation, I mean, you mentioned it, James Andrews is the best in the business, yeah. and um, I doubt that he cares about Nick Saban or or what anyone else is going to say. He's kind of his own brand and own celebrity in his own right, where he'll he'll give you his opinion, and that's what it is, because I'm James Andrews, you right. know what I mean? So it, it's unfortunate for sure, but there's definitely a process, and, and it, I don't think it's that common nowadays for coaches to go against that process. The only thing I, I think is real is – there's there's two different deviations for a player. It's can he play and is he healthy? Right, <laughs> right, right. Well, no one's ever really healthy. No, right. right. I mean, yeah. Especially at this point in the season. Right, absolutely. That. Yeah. So, so it's not for me, and that's what the thing. I'm not saying that you know nobody's healthy. We know that, right? It was, it's like the thing: are you injured or are you hurt? Right. If you're injured, right. you can't play. If you're hurt, you play through it. We know that. But this is a this is a higher level. I would say. First of all, we watched him limping through the game the week before. He just had surgery three weeks ago. This isn't like. One of those, oh, my arm is hurting, you know, but I'm going to play through it scenario. And you, but the reality is, and I even mentioned this on my show leading up to the game, that was Nick Saban's perfect opportunity to do what was in Tua's best interest and what was in Alabama's best interest was sit him for the LSU game. Mm -hmm. Because if you sit Tua for the LSU game, one, we saw him limping. He should probably shouldn't have been out there. Yeah. So now you're doing what's in his health best interest. And point. now when you lose to LSU, you have the narrative on your side. That's a good point. They were without their Heisman candidate quarterback, and now you can slide into the playoffs and still have all your goals. It was, right. it was the perfect scenario, but yeah. the minute he he you know showed his ass and played him yeah. against LSU, now it's tough to sit him the next game. Right. Or tougher, at least. And right. I think I think Mecca brought up an interesting point and in just the pressure here, right, from everyone that's involved. People often make bad decisions under pressure. Whether, you know, Nick Saban's at Alabama, they took a loss. Can you speak to that? Ohio State went through that pressure in 2014. 
and how that can potentially impact what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's one goal for Alabama after losing to LSU. The SEC's out, Atlanta's out, all that's out. Now it's just college football playoff. And then we went through it in 2014. Urban's talked about it on on Fox Big Noon kickoff or whatever his show's mm-hmm. called. It's, it's all right, now we still have this goal that is still attainable, but there's a process to get that done. Right. And that is, quote, unquote, style points. Yeah. Right? And so that's the 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 narrative that, that could definitely – push Tua to be on the field if he shouldn't be, especially, like you said, a four-win Mississippi State team. Right. What's the point of having an 80% Tua against a four-win team that your backup will be perfectly serviceable for? The only right. point is we need to make a statement. Yeah. Like, we need people to think we're the one of the four best teams in the country. And the commissioner in the college football of the uh, college football playoff last night of the committee, he had, he had mentioned that the reason why they kept Alabama, Alabama at number five in the rankings was because they had a quote-unquote decisive – I think decisive was the word, or a word like that, decisive victory against uh, against Mississippi State. And so he actually quoted not just the fact that they won the game, but that it was decisive. And to me, that speaks to kind of what you're saying of the incentives now are, and I mentioned this earlier, I mean, I understand that's what the incentive was, the incentives. You need to make a statement now because you just lost to LSU, and you're not going to go to the SEC championship game, and you only have a couple more games on the season to make a statement. But I think you could have made that same statement without Tua. I mean, I think, you know, going back to the NCAA again in our our conversation last week, right, it's like there is nothing that puts these kids first, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing in place. There's no – like who goes to the playoff makes the school money. Playing Tua is better for Alabama than not playing Tua. And I just – you know, you have to have situations where you do look out for the best interest of these kids, especially – when you're saying we're not going to pay them and we're going to give them a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even Nick's, the, the other thing that bothered me too, again, I don't want to get back into it too much, but Nick Saban's smug kind of response afterward, not really, didn't seem as concerned as you would hope somebody would seem. He goes back to his cushy lifestyle, his $8, 10000000 million a year, and this kid is fighting for his livelihood. You know, this is generational money that's on the line. And actually, speaking of that, that's a good segue into another question we have for you, Zach, is insurance. You know, we, we've we've talked to certain players and we know that there's some type of insurance that some of the star players can get at these colleges and universities. How, can you talk to us about how does that work? How do they determine who can get the insurance, who pays for it, and what are those premiums even like? Yeah, so it's, it's really school by school. Um, you, you can get an insurance policy on anyone. Now, the school will pay for it. Like Ohio State will pay the premium for their, uh, you know, X amount of players that they they get insurance for okay um and it's it's all based on draft value and it's all based on what you you know what type of policy you could get they're not going to waste money on a a lower stock right a lower policy because they view it as i guess i don't know i don't want to call it a waste of money but it's it they're gonna spend the money on the premium for those first and second round graded guys and pretty much all of them just to so you have that safety net of something right is that like is that like a added i mean added benefit so to speak kind of that that the schools provide or is that something that's required by the ncaa no i mean yeah. it, it's it's an added benefit certainly i mean any any kid could do it but they right. would have to foot the bill and that's kind of goes back to my whole theme this whole season has been don't we can't play that pay the player what are you talking about you just paid an insurance premium for a, p- a player you right. you can play, mm-hmm. pay the player right. in one form or fashion sure you can figure it out and uh but it's 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 like we were even talking about before you guys did the show is it's you're going to get a $5 million policy or a $3 million policy. And it's yeah. like, is that going to be the same as the $20 million contract you were going to get? No, but it's right. something. Yeah. Um, the, the best example we have is uh, Marcus Lattimore. His was $1.7 mm-hmm. Does that equate to the value 
that he lost. So V, if if let's say okay, based on last year's draft, let's say Tua was the first pick overall in the draft versus being let's say the last pick in the first round. Still a first rounder, but let's say the last pick in the first round. What's the difference in the value of money that he that he would get guaranteed? It's interesting because last year provides a great example because we're talking about quarterbacks, right? Yeah. Kyler Murray who was the number one overall pick, mm-hmm. signed a four-year, $35 million contract. And that, that's all guaranteed money, right? Yes. Yeah, it's all guaranteed. And I think the year before, Lamar Jackson was the number 32 pick, which was the last round in the first pick, first round. Last pick in the first round, yeah. Yeah, and that was four years, $9 million. Again, fully guaranteed. Mm-hmm. But So that's $35 million if you're the first pick in the first round, and $9 million guaranteed. If you're the last pick in the first and round. And even if Tua goes somewhere in the top five, there's a significant disparity, right, in mm-hmm. the money he's going to see as a top five pick. Let's say Joe Burrow goes number one, right? Right. There's still a significant disparity in the amount of money that he stands well, to make. And, and that's the thing. So, you know, I know when, when people start hearing millions, they kind of tune out. They don't care whether, you know, you have $2 million or $5 million or $10 million. And And I get it, right? So, you know, it's not necessarily – you know, the number one story you're going to lose sleep over at night, right? Because he's still essentially going to be a millionaire. But there is a big difference between $35 million and $9 million. Or if he never makes the recovery and it is just the insurance policy, which is probably like $5 million, bucks, it's cool. But again, it doesn't get him to where he was supposed to go. And that's why this pisses me off so bad about Nick Saban. And then also, he's also dedicating his body for these years while he's at school at Alabama making a ton of people money and he's not able to capture that value right now. And so the whole thing just really, really bothers me. But let's put a bow on that for now. And I, I Zach, while you're here, you know, obviously Ohio State, Penn State, one of the biggest games in college football this weekend, probably the biggest game in college football. It has serious implications for not just the Big Ten, but the college football playoff, the rankings. Who goes to the Big Ten Championship? I mean, it's a it's a big, big deal. So we definitely wanted to kind of get an Ohio State-Penn State preview. Not just the X's and O's, but also dig a little bit deeper and some of the how do you prepare for that game. So one of the questions I, that I'm curious about, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are cu- curious about, is well, how do you prepare for that game if it's at Penn State and it's a whiteout, for example? Right. What does that week look like versus whether you're playing that game at home? Because that whiteout to me is is the nastiest environment in all college football. Yeah, it's one of the coolest I've ever been a part of. I mean, yeah. it's a top two or three. I mean, LSU, Death Valley, and and whiteout at Penn State yeah. are pretty much the two where you're like, those two are just different. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but it, it's crazy because as a coach, you always say, you know, you prepare and no different. You know, every week you, you do the same things. You commit the same time. Right. It's complete bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it sounds right. so cute. Yeah. And it's, I get it. That's what you're supposed to say. Like, <laughs> like well, the team played well today. Right. You know, right. it's, it's coach speak. It's all, it's all nonsense. Right. Like, I mean, I was a part of, I mean, I'm, my favorite uh, game to compare it to was Michigan State in 2014. After losing, we were 24-0, lost to Michigan State in 2013. So when we went to play them in 2014, there was this heightened sense of urgency mm-hmm. like this is this is the super bowl right the mid-season super bowl and that's what ohio state's dealing with right now is this is the only top 10 matchup in the country remaining on the schedule mm-hmm. and so and you you mentioned all the implications yeah but i don't care what anyone says yeah i don't care what ryan day says in the media it is different right now yeah down at the woody hayes yeah. everything's different the, the players how much time they're putting into watching film yeah how much how, how the coaches prepare because ultimately you you want it to feel a little different, yeah. And and uh, now the difference between a home game and a, and a whiteout at Penn State is 
I mean, it's night and day. Right. I mean, you're preparing for that whiteout, and it's all week long, crowd noise going on, speakers you mm. can't even hear, can't even coach, can't do anything. Yeah. So it's simulated all week. That okay. chaos is simulated. Yeah. And then the home game, there's you're going to have business as usual in practice. It's right. not too chaotic. I mean, it's intense, but um, yeah. it's, it's not – I mean, I'll never forget. You play a big game like that. It was like you couldn't coach your guys during practice because it was deafening. You couldn't hear. You couldn't hear. Yeah, they yeah. couldn't hear. No one could hear. And it was like, and you, I used to look at Urban like I can't. I'm trying to coach my. And he would look at me like, sorry, right? Like I don't know. You're gonna try to does coach that, him. On does that Saturday? actually help though? Do you do you really, does it do you, does it translate to the field? Or I, I think it, it definitely helps because it, it, the, kind of the mantra is like, all right, what are you gonna do Saturday when you're trying to coach them? Mm, like, yeah. like, get closer, yell louder. I don't. Right. What do you want? Figure what, it out. Oh, I got it. Right. Tell the crowd. Hey, hold on. Keep it down. I got to tell my guys something. <laughs> right, like, right, what are you right. gonna do? Right, right. And so it definitely uh, nothing prepares you entirely for it, yeah. but. It's it's at least a step of preparation for right. sure. And, and real quick on the on the uh, impact, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever wins this game theoretically has the is in the driver's seat to go to the Big Ten Championship. Oh, absolutely. So, how do you think that plays out? Like, if if Ohio State wins or if Penn State wins, talk, walk us through what that could mean literally for the Big Ten. What could that mean for college football? Yeah, it's, there's there's nothing more deflating than when you're on a national trajectory mm-hmm. and you have that hiccup, a la 2015 Michigan State, where it's yeah. like you lose everything in one game. Mm-hmm. Like you're looking at college football playoffs, possibly a national championship, big 10 championship. And in one four hour block, you can lose it all. Mm-hmm. And it's so the ramifications on, on the trajectory of the program, especially in Ryan day's first year is mm-hmm. just, I mean, I don't know, astronomical. You can't even, you can't even put a value on it. Right. And I wanted to ask a follow up question on that. I think, you know, you, you were there for, quite a bit of time you have to be pretty much 30 or over to remember the last time that michigan beat ohio state <laughs> right That's so, a fact. i just wanted to to ask like is penn state the bigger rivalry now like in the in the program <laughs> oh you mean for the the non-senior citizens that can yeah. remember that time oh <laughs> um I, I don't know. I don't know that I'd say it's the bigger rivalry it's it it, it could be perceived that way because of I guess the record in the the recent games, but there's nothing like that game, and there's nothing like that, that week of preparation. There's nothing like that atmosphere. There's nothing. I mean, this, in my opinion, their greatest test is coming in two weeks. It is not this week at home. Penn State. I think Ohio State's a much better team. You look at Michigan coming down the the road the next week. It's it's at their place on the road for Ohio State. Michigan has one of the top two three defenses in America. All they need is just their offense to just like, mm-hmm. just I mean, not even a spark, just like a flash, just right. just like a little tiny bit, and they it's going to be a battle. Yeah, and so I inside the program, you can't even compare the two. Now, now there's been some awesome wins and losses against Penn State in the last six seven years, yeah. so it's definitely cranked up a notch. But it, nothing's ever going to reach the level of the game, you know. And one other thing in terms of you dropped a bombshell last week, right? You didn't say whether. You didn't guarantee that that's what happened, but you said that the rumor mill was saying that James Franklin dropped the bomb right. and um, snitched on Chase Young. If you're a coach, how do you use that? Even whether it's true or not, how do coaches use that as motivation? How do you think that's going to impact Chase Young's preparation going into the game? Yeah, I mean, I think innately he's going to be a pissed off version of Chase Young just because he's coming back, mm-hmm. regardless of of how it happened, who who's to blame or any of that. He, they're already going to face a fresh, rested, uh, angry Chase Young. That right. was already going to happen. Um, but I know as a coach, especially a position coach, you were trying to find any way possible to just add a little more motivation to a player. And my my favorite story that that I have told 
is when I coached Michael Thomas. He's a generational talent at receiver. People might not have realized it at the time, but it, they realize it now. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you knew it back then because I remember talking to you about it way, way, oh. way before. Before he was even starting, you were telling me about Michael Thomas. Ridiculous. Yeah. And and so we got to the point where it was 2015. We're playing Virginia Tech. They had this kid named Kendall Fuller who was the preseason number one corner in the country. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, Thorpe Award front runner. Kirk Herbstreet was boosting him up. He gave him a Herbie Award. And I mean, I wore Mike out. And I told him before the week started, I said, listen, by the end of the week, you are going to want to fight me. Yeah. You're going to be so annoyed, so pissed off. I used to do, I mean, I print off pictures of this kid like with the Thorpe Award. And I put him, <laughs> I put him all over Mike's locker. Right. We go into a team meeting. Mike's whole chair was covered in these pictures. Like the meeting room, I think we I had my intern print off 300 copies of these this kid. Like just funny things like uh the world is covered by 80% water. The other 20% are covered by Kendall Fuller. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Things like that. And and it really, like, by the end of the week, he he didn't want to come to my meeting room. He didn't want to talk to me. He didn't want to. He was so fuming. Yeah. And we got in the game, and it was ridiculous. I mean, he went after this kid's whole livelihood. <laughs> and I mean, just, I mean, he... He could have had 300 yards receiving, yeah. if we, and we, he still had, like, I think 90 yards. Right. Broke him off a couple times, and after the game, you saw his frustration. Like, he tweeted at Kirk Herbstreet. He's, t- he's tweeting at these people. I'm like, oh, God, I created a monster. <laughs> right, right, right. But, I mean, and so as a position coach, you're looking for anything, anything yeah, that'll make yeah. make that player transcend even their own performance, which, God, I can't even imagine what that would be for Chase Young if he transcends how he's been playing. Right. So, let's speaking of that, let's talk X's and O's a little bit. Where do you think, you know, just, I guess, from a X's, and, X's and O's perspective, where do you think – Ohio State has an advantage. Does Penn State have an advantage anywhere on the field in this game? How do you think this game actually ultimately plays out? Uh, I think I think Penn State was uh, really operating on borrowed time. That they, they were kind of riding a wave that was a little above themselves as they were undefeated and playing these teams. Uh, I, I don't think there's a real disadvantage for Ohio State. I think Ohio State's defense is the best in the country, and that they're certainly not a matchup that I would be concerned about on the defensive side of the ball, especially with Chase coming back. Right. But even in his absence, the defensive line, Tyreek Smith and, and some of the young kids, Zach Harrison, were coming out there and just, I mean, performing, oh, yeah. I mean, not as well as Chase Young, sure. but but well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I think probably the biggest concern to me is going to be Justin Fields getting the ball out of his hand on time because for two reasons. One, the pass pro has been okay, mm-hmm. and him holding onto the ball makes it worse. Sure. And then also, I think it's going to be critical with these receivers. At some point, they need to start making huge plays, like explosive plays. Right. Because you're seeing, and not that they haven't have needed to, but you watch some of these other teams that are on these national levels. Like Clemson. Uh, Clemson. LSU. Alabama. Those LSU. Big plays. LSU I mean, receivers are crazy. They're always cr- oh, yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm on my show uh, that'll be released later today, I'm going to talk about the receiver course in, okay. the, in the country. Yeah. And you look at some of these other ones, it's like LSU, Alabama, Clemson. They all have three. Some of them have four of the top 25 receivers grade-wise, production-wise. And Ohio State has that. They just haven't done it yeah. you know what i mean i mean yeah. you look at guys what like, do you attribute that to what's i mean what's the uh, it's is it just game script because i know you know is it is it i think not it's not needing to it's, it's a little of everything yeah you know and, and it's i i used to say it when i coach receivers because we would be like that almost every year but there was going to come a point where you played a team where it was like now you got to do it yeah and it was michigan state in 2015 it was penn state in 2016 17 there's always that game, and especially is if they make a run into the playoffs, they're going to face a team that is like, all right, JK's not going to run for 200 yards today. Right. What right. are you going to do? Yeah. And so I don't know that this is necessarily that game for them. I think yeah. next week is. So who are the who are the receivers this particular week that you feel like 
are going to have to make impact. So Olave. Well, I mean, so Chris Olave is the one that is really, I mean, emerged as as the most dynamic player in the room. Mm-hmm. Now, Ben Victor has shown, I mean, he, he's had his best year of his career, and he certainly has the talent to to play with anyone. Yeah. So I'm really excited. Those two, KJ Hill has to be what he always has been, which is a great player that is consistent and is going to make plays when needed. Right. Austin's hurt, right? And, a little and bit. That's, so that's the big thing is when yeah. when is Austin going to come back and when is Austin going to be 100%? Right. Because, I mean, the sad thing is, uh, outside of some flashes, I don't think people know how good he really so is. Good. He's, He's so good. good. He, and, and it's like yeah. he, he every now and then you see him flash and you're like, but people want to bring up, oh, he had two drops in this it's game. And it's like, all right, whatever, yeah. he's an NFL player. Yeah, I, I've, sure. I recruited him, coached him. I see him now. I know he is. Yeah. So it's when is he going to be 100% healthy and come back just to add to that dynamic uh, quality on the perimeter? Right. And are, are there any any tendencies like, you know, you guys coach and play these teams every year in the division. Like, what are James Franklin's tendencies, if any, that you guys, that the program knows about that you go into every year and say, okay, he's going to do this? Yeah, so James Franklin is is one of the better offensive minds in college football. He, he kind of reminds me uh, – the, the, what they do on offense, at least, reminds me of Oklahoma a little bit. They have some really good quarterback run game stuff. Some of the stuff you're watching Jalen Hurts do. Uh, so they're they're always going to have some what what we used to call dickums, like plays where it's like son of a bitch, right. like what is that? Right. Like there's some compliment <laughs> off a compliment that they haven't used all year, and when right. they do it, it's like shit. Right. And right. so they're they're really well coached. They always have something real quick on yeah, that. Yeah. When that happens, do you guys just like tip your hat and like, okay, you guys got us? Yeah, basically, yeah, okay. Yeah. And you just hope they don't have six of them, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. he, they they do a great job game planning. They're going to find any tendency, anything, any weakness, any way they can uh, attack what you're doing to stop them. They're they're one of the better staffs in the country at that. So it's going to be a battle. Um, in Ohio State's more talented. Ohio State is a better team, has a better offense, has a better defense. Like it, but it will not show as much as it sh- should, at least initially. They always play us close. Always, yeah. and, yeah, it doesn't matter. And now you're talking about it's a home game, might rain. It's like, oh, yeah, this is I heard not, about the rain thing today. Yeah, so that's that's. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the college football rankings that came out last night. Was there anything that stood out to you? I, I saw that Minnesota actually is ranked above. No, wait. Penn State is ranked above Minnesota, even though Minnesota beat Penn State. That's one thing that stood out to me. Well, that's a bizarre. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that stands out to me every every time they come out or anything happens is like that. It's basically a room full of people. Half of them don't know anything about the sport or who's good, yeah. and they're making decisions with no criteria. It's like what? Why? Yeah. Like why did that happen? Whatever any scenario, you name it. Why did Alabama stay at five? Right. Why? Why would Penn State ever be ranked above Minnesota? Like what? There's no criteria, and um, the good news is I don't think. It's going to matter much. I think there's really three teams in the country that are vying for this this championship right now, and it's Ohio State, LSU, and Clemson. Right. And then I think you're really going to throw a fourth in, and it's the only thing that's going to be beneficial is whoever has the one seed is going to get to play the four seed. Right. <laughs> because you, if you look at Ohio State at two, you mean they're going to have to play Clemson and then LSU to win it all? That's, I mean, my God, you talk about a two-game stretch. But didn't, Mecca, didn't you say that they said something about margin of victory mattering? And we've been told – for years that it doesn't, but you know that it does. It does. In 2014, the only reason we got in in 2014 and ended up winning it all is because we just absolutely kept the foot on the pedal against uh, Wisconsin, 49 nothing, and it's like that's the only reason we got in. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're up whatever it was, 42 nothing, 49, and it was like, don't take the starters out. We got to go. Keep going. So last question I guess I'll ask. I'm probably surprised I haven't asked you this yet. Is what is the if, – if you were the person that was to decide – 
what system we would use to decide who's the best or who's in the national championship at the end, what would what would you do? How would you create a system, or what system would you? use? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think there's a perfect system. Right. Um, and and the the best part is is every system is always broken, right? Every right. the BCS was broken. We tried to take human error out of it and let computers do it, but then it was like, well, the computers don't know who's good. But now we put people in a room, and most of them don't know who's good. Right. Um. I I really think they need to come up with a a committee of people that study the game of football that that know football mm-hmm. and can evaluate teams because i watched even analysts that don't and you're like how how could you possibly put teams in that order if right. you watch the film like yeah. I, I did this for 15 years yeah. i'm not saying i'm the end all be all but then some guys like joel clatt i every time he puts out a ranking yeah. or analyzes a game i sit there and i'm like thank you because he actually you could tell he actually watches the game right. he watches the film he actually breaks it down i think that a lot of analysts i see i feel like they're not watching they're looking at highlights they're looking at final scores. They're too lazy to go in and actually do the work. Well, and and they're a lot of them are are driving narratives with financial gain in mind for their employers. I mean, ESPN is it, it's no secret the SEC bias that ESPN has with the SEC network and all the stuff going on. Yeah. And so they put out these cogs of people like Heather Dinish, and I've been all over her all year because as she says stuff, I'm like, oh my <laughs> what god, are you talking about yeah, like it's not even like sexism. Like, right. do you watch it or know anything? A lot of people say that Joel Klatt is an Ohio State homer, but it seems like he's the only one in the room and this media that's keeping it keeping it 100. Yeah. Well, and the reality well, is well, he's, 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 really not a, he's a Michigan guy. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah. Earlier in the season, and he it, was he chose Michigan to be the one that was going to win the Big Ten. And, it, and then by watching the film and actually watching the games and evaluating, he came around the corner. Thank you so much to Zach Smith for joining us on today's show. Everybody check out his podcast, Menace to Sports. You can check it out everywhere and follow him on Twitter at Coach Zach Smith. We'll be right back with our final thoughts. I'm feeling like a million bucks Cutting up just for the money We like nip and tuck uh, Jet like Benny from the sand lot uh, Cost 50,000 for my handcock Ah, uh, baby, baby Riding to the top Driving haters crazy Never gonna stop uh, I'm feeling like a million bucks Cutting up just for the money We like nip and tuck If you like that song that you've been hearing all day on the podcast it's called Nip and Tuck by Macadon, and it's streaming everywhere. Woo! Welcome back to the Pilot Boys podcast. We are here with our final thoughts. So, V, we had a conversation earlier about Tua, Tunga Vailoa, and the situation with Nick Saban, and it brought me to some interesting things that I thought about that I thought would be very interesting for you to speak about specifically. My question to you is, what are some of the things that players can do while they're, quote-unquote, amateurs to protect or enhance their value? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked a great deal last week about the system. Um, And the truth is, the system is what the system is, Mm -hmm. you know? And people can succeed within that system. And the first thing players need to recognize, especially at these elite programs like Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, is that you're creating value in those three to four years that you're on campus that you can monetize for the rest of your life, right? Mm -hmm. They just passed the personal image and, and likeness thing, that's that's one way, right? But let's say that you weren't able to make money off of your brand, like is existent now. It's like making a plan, thinking about trademarking and licensing. You have a nickname that people call you. Mm-hmm. Your brand on social media, how do, I, how do I set myself up so that when I'm not under these archaic rules, I can maximize what I can make? And that means continuing to stay connected to your college program 
when you go off to the NFL. One thing that I think is a mistake a lot of guys make is they go to their football franchise, say it's the Saints or the Texans or the Browns, and they forget to come back and say, hey, I created three years of value here that I didn't get paid for. What are ways that I can make that money back now? That's a great point because I think locally, even in Columbus, Ohio, right, former Ohio State players are treated as you know celebrities indefinitely. I mean, and they're guys in their 60s and 70s who are still doing autograph signings based on you know their career that they had at Ohio State. I guess the question is then, how do we get that message, or how does that message get down or passed down to the players? How do they, where are they, can they hear this from, or where should they be hearing that type of thing from? I think a big part of it is players talk to players, right? And if more players start focusing in on this, I mean, the example that I always go to is what Mar- um, Marshawn Lynch did with Beast Mode. Beast Mode is a seven-figure merchandise company that he's capitalized on and is 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 feeding his family is giving jobs it's like the more those examples are highlighted and talked about and there are several other guys that are doing it mm-hmm. you, i've seen well i see a lot of the college guys they're branding themselves these guys some of these guys come into you know their colleges and they already have a hundred thousand followers or you know one hundred fifty thousand followers and they have nicknames and highlight videos and all kinds of things that they're doing before zion Williamson, for example, even got to ever got to Duke. I had heard of his name a thousand times. They you know? do. They definitely do a much better job in basketball because these guys get names for themselves earlier, and there's there's money flowing in a lot earlier. But you know, I do think it's something that everybody is starting to do. But it's just understand. You have to understand and accept that it's a long term thing. This is something that you take the three years that you're at college to build, so you can execute later. So you got to have the patience to understand what you're doing and actually have a goal of what you're trying to do. And for someone like Tua, I guess the last thing on this is for someone like Tua, what are some of the things that he can do specifically or that he'll be able to do eventually to potentially capture some of this lost value? Or, you know, if a worst case scenario happens, he is not able to play again. I mean, Tua is an outlier amongst amongst these guys, right? Because if you look at his resume, national champion, Heisman contender, he's like one of the greatest players Alabama has ever had. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of his life, he can go back down to Tuscaloosa and make some money if he needs to. But it's thinking beyond just, oh, I'm going to go do an appearance and make, what can I do? Is there a business that I can start? Right. Is there, are there other things outside of what everybody else does that I can do that's unique to me that can help generate money for me and my family, brand value, but two as an example, obviously he's not going to make $35 million doing that. Yeah. But he should be good for the rest of his life based on what he's done for Alabama and that program. And just being a great kid. Like, that's one thing about this. You don't want to see something like this happen to a kid like that. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think we all over here hope that everything turns out well for him and that he is able to fulfill his goals and dreams and, you know, that he bounces back from that injury. Uh, That's all we have for today's show. Thank you to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and also on YouTube. Don't forget to follow us on social media. On Twitter, it's at Pilot Boys Pod. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Pilot Boys Podcast. And always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up.